Welcome back, everyone. We will now turn our attention to the reading and preaching of God's Word. And to help us with the reading of Scripture this morning, I'm going to invite Jay to come up and to read our Scripture passage for today. Our reading today is from Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome to our uh, Sunday service. My name is Dan McDonald. I am one of the pastors here at Grace Toronto, uh, and it is my pleasure to continue our series on the church. But before we do that, a quick update. You will be receiving probably both by email and short video news that because of the present spike in COVID, we will be deferring our opening to live services. Uh, we were planning to do it next weekend, uh, Thanksgiving weekend, but the present spike, uh, we are being told by uh, a deep, fairly thorough, thoughtful medical analysis is not a blip. It is the beginning of the second wave. And for a variety of reasons, including the demographic of people who are presently getting sick, which matches ours, uh, the rise in cases and the general anxiety in our city and our desire to love our neighbor, bear witness to our city, love each other. Uh, all these things come together to tell us, let's defer, let's move toward live stream, which is what we're going to do, but not invite people in so that we can minimize the amount of people who are here and minimize the opportunity for COVID to spread. Let's take a half step forward instead of that full step forward. Keep moving so that we are ready if uh, COVID cases change to move immediately to live services and do it well. So that's the direction we're going. You're probably getting more information in your inbox by now, but that's uh, what we're doing for next Sunday. So <clears throat> be encouraged. The screen behind you tells us we are ready. The pews are taped off, the piano and the mics are all, all ready for live stream. We're just waiting to be ready when COVID and love of neighbor, love of city, love of God love of each other allows us to do so well and thoughtfully. Thanks. All right, we are now finishing our series on the church. We are talking, we've been talking about the church as, as a glorious bride, glorious body, glorious temple, glorious aliens. And we need to hear these things because in our present cultural and political moment, with the deep divisions and the increasingly uncivil behavior that we are seeing by many people in our leadership, our cultural leadership, our political leadership. All of these things have caused in us a deep longing in the heart of our land, our continent, for a different way of living together, a different way of treating each other, a different way of dealing with economic inequality, racism, privilege, we're scratching, and we're screaming, and we're fighting, and we're posturing. But we seem to be stuck. We're not progressing. 
And we're longing, and this longing is growing for a different kind of being, a different kind of living and treating each other, a different kind of city, a different kind of culture. It's just the kind of culture that this snapshot from the book of Acts, written by Luke, gives us. Just the kind of new way of living and being, a new kind of city that the gospel can produce and did and will. The kind of culture we would love to see in our own lives. Well, as we've been discussing the beauty of the church of Jesus Christ, with all her warts and weaknesses, all her sin and ugly moments, both present and historical, we see the church is this precious thing in the eyes of God. It is a glorious body. It is a glorious bride. It is His company of glorious exiles. It is this glorious temple where people meet with God, worship God, and find God's grace for the forgiveness of everything wrong they've done. This passage here brings all of this together. And Luke, the writer, shows us with this snapshot that the church, at its best, with the power of the gospel coursing through us, the church looks like a radiant bride. The church acts like a unified body. The church conducts itself like aliens. And the church becomes a temple of grace for the world. This is our past. This can be our present and our future. This is the template for how we are to be. Let's look at these snapshots and see how these different iterations of the church, different perspectives of the church come together in this glorious snapshot. We will see here that in this passage, Acts 4, we see the church as Christ's glorious body. We see church as Christ's glorious bride. We see church as Christ's glorious exiles. And we see church as Christ's glorious temple. So let's look at those. Body, bride, temple, and exiles come together. And when they come together, the composite picture, we are Christ's new city, a true city on a hill, a true light to the world. First, body, Christ's body. See the unity here in this picture from Acts 4. It starts in verse 32 and says, The full member of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them were their own but they had everything in common. Here you see the church in full unity. Luke tells us two things about the unity of this church, the early church, the the church at its birth in Jerusalem, just after the Spirit of God has come down upon them in full power at the Jewish Feast of Pentecost. Firstly, they were united, it says, in mind and spirit. There was this overarching, deep, fundamental unity. They knew who they were. They were Jesus' adopted children. They knew they had been forgiven of their sins. They knew that they were here for a purpose, to tell people in word and deed about who Jesus was. They had this deep unity of identity, not unity in every single detail. There was great diversity. They, They probably still had their favorite sports teams and politicians and architectural styles, whatever. But at the deepest level, they really understood their unity. So the store owners and the slave owners would sit with the store employees and the slaves and the servants would sit with masters in the same pews in the early church. There was a deep unity despite all these socioeconomic, ethnographic divisions that existed. Now, not all the time. This is a snapshot of the church at her best. No doubt about it. The rest of the New Testament shows a more checkered church, maybe a more realistic church. But Luke wants us to say, when we get it, 
At the deepest level of identity, we rejoice in each other's differences, but see the deep unity underneath. We see each other as brothers and sisters. As a matter of fact, it is well known in church history that the church was considered incestuous by skeptics and what the outside world because they kept calling each other brothers and sisters even though they might be married to each other. These kind of confusions came up. They were deeply unified in in mind and spirit. But secondly, they were united in their possessions. It says they held these things as if they weren't their own. Many, many sermons over, over the years have been made from this passage, including by me, about the template for generosity that's shown here. But this is not a sermon on giving or generosity. I do want us, however, to ask this. What underlies the generosity that we see revealed in this passage? Because here it tells us that it's the presupposition, it's the way they view, think, see each other that catalyzes the generosity. All of our possessions were held in common. This is the language of family. This is the language of people thinking that they're united in the deepest way. They're family, or even they're married. Edward Gibbon, in his now iconic history of the Roman Empire, said this about the early church in the Roman Empire. A generous interchange of charity united the most distant provinces, and the smaller congregations were cheerfully assisted by the financial generosity of their more opulent brethren. The pagans, that's the technical word for those who are not Christians, who, who were actuated by a sense of humanity, while they derided Christian doctrines, acknowledged the generosity of this new sect. Timothy Keller, in looking at church history, best-selling author, pastor, and speaker, put it this way. The early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their, uh, nobody their money and practically everybody their body. And then the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body, but they gave practically everybody their money. This is the church at the deepest levels of unity, understanding that they're one body in Christ. And so the needier member gets from the richer member money. Matter of fact, Gibbon said that they were motivated not by merit, but by need in the early days of the church. Where is the needy member? And so I want to say, this is the church acting like a body. The better stocked parts of the church giving to the more needy parts. People giving generously. So, implication. First of all, if you're here and you're investigating Christianity, if you're a skeptic, I want to ask you this question. Take a look at your own life. Take a look at your own financial patterns and ask this question, how generous am I? Does your own worldview catalyze you into a generous willingness to give in ways that are costly to you? Almost every study of charitable giving in North America over the past 40 years has consistently shown that the single greatest factor in charitable giving amongst North Americans is the intensity of their religious belief and the particularity of their religious belief. Two groups stand out as particularly markedly more generous in their giving per income capita, however you want to put that, as a percentage of income. Bible-believing Christians and Mormons. 
One study put it this way, religious practice is the behavioral variable most consistently associated with generous giving. Charitable giving correlates strongly, most strongly with the frequency with which a person attends religious services, particularly evangelical Protestants and Mormons are the strong givers. Why? Because your own generosity with your own stuff is tied to how you see your stuff and how you see others around you. Generosity isn't a strange, weird DNA thing given to some people. It's actually a new way of seeing things. The church saw things differently. They were one people, one body. Therefore, their stuff was for each other. They held it in common. Now, the theme of generosity actually, though, goes even deeper, beyond even body motif, because in verse 14, it picks up the second idea of the church's bride. Because he starts to get more detailed. He goes from the big to the more detailed. And this is what he says, Luke says. There was not a needy person among them. Remember that. For as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the, at the apostles' feet. And it was then distributed to each as any had need. And then it gives the example of one named Barnabas who did exactly that. Selling homes and land. Okay, this is a level of generosity beyond what any utopian picture of society painted by the Greeks and the Romans in these days ever possessed. Holding all things in common, selling your possessions, selling parts of your inheritance, selling parts of your financial security, homes and land. Even the, even the Jewish people didn't do that. They tithed of their income. But the Christians, animated by the power of the gospel, seeing each other as one body, went even more deeply. They were beginning to act like a bride. You see, the church saw itself as, Jesus is my husband, and I so love him. I'm going to give everything I have and make us one. Everything I have is given to him. The apostles represented the leadership of the church. They represented Christ representative, we're going to give to Jesus, our husband, everything. Hold everything in common. The church here is submitting to the leadership of Jesus himself, God. The church is the bride of a husband who gave himself away. Who was nailed to a tree for his bride. The church is acting like the bride of a husband who allowed himself to be mocked, beaten, rejected, and crucified. Who gave up everything he owned for his bride. And the church is responding by saying, I will give you back everything I own. Jesus came to be a scapegoat and a sin offering for you. He gave his life away physically and allowed himself to die. He gave his, his beloved status before his father away so you could be beloved. He took the guilt of you and me. He didn't just die physically. He experienced a spiritual alienation from his father, a kind of spiritual death for you and for me. As a loving bride, he gave everything he had. And so here the church says, I will give you in response everything we have. What a picture. No utopian literature in that day went that far. No city I see, no culture I see goes this far. 
And in so doing, the church fulfills the bridely mandate. God himself had said in Deuteronomy 15, if anyone is poor among your fellow people of God, Israelites, that's what they were called then, in any of the towns of the land your Lord, your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them, be open-handed rather, and freely lend them whatever they need. That's what the law said. Here the gospel says, we're not going to lend it to you, we're going to give it to you. Unbelievable. This, this level of generosity shows the church as a bride giving everything to a bridegroom who has given everything for her. Implications. Now I'll go to the Christians first. When we give to the church, do we see ourselves this way? Do we see ourselves as spouses giving as an act of love and gratitude and joy back to God the things that we have to show our bridal commitment to Him because He's given His life for us? Do we give our finances? Are we willing to give our wealth and some of our financial security to Him as a normal, rightful response to the groom who's given His life for us? John Chrysostom wrote to the early church, said the Holy Scriptures were not given to us that we should enclose them in books, but that we should engrave them on our hearts. That picture of you being His bride, engraved on your hearts, will catalyze that kind of generosity. That seeing each other as part of the body will catalyze this kind, uh, and it will stagger the city that we inhabit. And they will go, what is this new city? If you're here and you're interested in Christianity, you know that incredibly wealthy gifts are being given. the, the Temer, Temerity, I think, Temerity Family Foundation's huge gift to the University of Toronto medical uh, faculty is all over the news. It's beautiful. But commentators are coming out and pointing out these gifts. This $250 million has not changed in any way the lifestyle of the family that gave it. But this picture here is of people having their lifestyle severely changed by their generosity. Aren't you longing to see that kind of generosity in your culture? I need to tell you, if you come to Grace Toronto, you will see people who are doing this. When we, fought, when we bought our first building on 41 Britain, there were audits. Because so many of our people were giving so much of their money that the CRA couldn't believe it. They started auditing. They even called our church like, what's going on? Or, you know, like They probably thought we were a cult or something. So many people were giving so much money because we were buying our first building. Well, now that we bought this second building, another miracle of generosity, story after story, not CRA audits, but I know people giving of land and of their inheritance and houses and built to help buy and renovate this building. Grace West last year gave per person more than we'd ever seen anyone give in all of our years here at Grace Toronto, it staggered the people at Redeemer New York because we're one of their church plants. They're like, we just have not seen this level. Grace Toronto, we have glimmers of being this kind of people. We have been. We have little snippet snapshots of just this kind of people. Well done. Let's keep going. Let's pursue this picture of being a body and a bride and letting that catalyze the generosity that stuns the world and shows a new city for the world to consider church's bride sorry church as body church's bride thirdly church's aliens now here i've got to kind of lean back a little bit 
into the text that's immediately prior to this. Uh, sorry, I'm looking for my Bible. I just I put it down somewhere, and I can't find it. That's okay. Uh, because in the text immediately before this, sorry, in the text immediately before this, I will remember, I, I've got it written in my notes here. The early church is responding to something. Let me set the scene. The early church is gathered in Jerusalem. It's really just in Jerusalem at this point. They've been beginning to share the good news that Jesus actually physically rose from the dead. They've gotten in troubles with the authorities for doing that. Peter and John have been arrested. They've been questioned. They've been threatened. They've said, I refuse. We refuse to stop preaching the gospel. Bible's right here. (laughs) And so this is what it says in that part of Acts that just precedes this. This is what happens. They go back and they tell the people. The people gather. The church. And the church in Acts 4 responds. How? They pray. They pray to God. They act like aliens. They say this when they pray. O sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. God, you planned this. Then a little later down, verse 27, In the city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God, this rejection, these threats, this is just part of our identity of following a rejected alien Savior. We embrace it. We're not afraid of it. We are your glorious aliens. Now, let's continue with their prayer. Verse 29. It says, Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. You hear that? Okay, Lord. Help us respond as aliens. Give us courage. Do miracles around us. Help us proclaim the excellencies of you. These are the prayers of people who are not afraid of threats, who are not afraid of losing their status as respectable people, who are not afraid of being rejected. You see, they're embracing their status as aliens. And the New Testament is filled with the call for us and says, until you embrace that, you won't be free. You'll still want the respect of the culture. You'll still crave the acceptance of the culture. And you'll never have the power of being free from that. Until you're free from that craving, you'll never have the power to proclaim His excellencies. We said that last week. Listen to Hebrews 11 about the people who've gone before us. The people who are part of the body and the bride of Christ, and how they responded, and how we should. Hebrews 11, talking about a group of people who trusted God. Through faith they conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice, they obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions, they quenched the power of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword. Miracles were being done. They were made strong out of weakness. They were mighty in war. They even put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead back by resurrection. Great glorious miracles. But now watch the switch. But some were tortured. 
refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. See the duality. Power from God, power through God, but rejection by our society. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They sometimes went about in skins of sheep and goats. They were destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And here it is. People of whom the world was not worthy. You hear that? When you're free and embrace being aliens as this church in Acts 4 did, consistent with the church of faith throughout history, says Hebrews 11, you're people of whom the world is not worthy. Aliens. Finally, Look what happened when they prayed. When they prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. The place was shaken. The original reader would immediately go, God's presence is filling that place just like He filled the temple when it was first built. Just like He would inhabit the people in the desert when there was a tabernacle and there was a cloud. This is God responding and saying, I am with you. I am in your midst. I am present with you. You are my temple. You are my temple. You are the place where God is to be met, encountered, worshipped, and where forgiveness of sins is to be found. And they became the temple of God in Jerusalem at that moment. The physical temple still existed. This was probably around 33 AD. In 68 AD, that temple would be destroyed by a Roman occupying army. But what the writer Luke is saying is God's presence is no longer in that temple already. He's among people who call themselves the bride, who call themselves Christians. We are the temple of God. We're the body of Christ. We're the glorious bride of Christ. We're the glorious aliens of Christ. And when we act this way, praying and proclaiming and asking God to come He comes among us and we become the temple of Christ. Skeptics, those of you considering Christianity, Luke wrote this in the same kind of grammatical way that these idealistic, utopian visions of a just society were written in his day to make us think about those, to make us long for those, and to go, your longings find their fulfillment in the church as the people of God who've encountered God in the Gospel. Do you want that kind of society? You can't find it anywhere else. But here, when the Gospel is coursing through and the Spirit is empowering the church, you found your home. What your heart's been longing for. Come to Jesus. Come home. Christians, I want to ask you, which of these identity pieces is hardest for you to adopt individually and personally? Do you struggle with this idea of your reputation and your respect and your place in society being rejected? Do you feel like embracing the idea of being an alien is just too hard? Do you struggle with being generous with your stuff? Do you feel like this idea of being a body and being Christ's bride is really hard for you to embrace? Do you struggle with being bold as a witness for Christ and seeing 
God move through you being bold publicly? Do you struggle with being a temple? Do you struggle with unity with other Christians who disagree with you? Find which one of these and ask God to change you. Think about these pictures. Bride, body, temple, aliens. Because these four together make us a new city. We all struggle, by the way, with reputations and being respected and not rejected. But Grace Toronto, I want to encourage you. I have seen you willing to stand up for your faith, invite people to walk into a relationship with God or consider it. Begin a journey of faith. Well done. Keep going. We all struggle with generosity, but as I said, we've been a generous church. Well done. Let's keep going. We all struggle with unity with each other, especially people who disagree with us among many of these issues, racism, COVID, politics. But I have to tell you, as I've compared us with other churches by talking to other pastors, our unity in these issues has been pretty darn good. Well done. Let's keep it up. We all struggle with prayer and boldness. But keep praying. Keep inviting people. Keep telling people. Ignatius of Antioch said to the church, not quite this early, but in the early days, pray without ceasing on behalf of other people. For cannot they that have fallen rise again have faith that God can use you as the temple where people can meet God? Finally, I want to ask you to consider three questions if you are wherever you are in your journey of faith. Who is God to me? Because the Gospel says God is your loving Father who sent Jesus to be your loving groom so that you could become His adopted children. That's the God of the Gospel. He loves you so deeply and intimately, so faithfully and enduringly. Who's God to you? Can you trust Him with your stuff, with your life, with your reputation? Who's God to you? Secondly, who are you to God? Are you His beloved child? Are you united to Him and part of His beloved bride? Is He your groom? Do you see the length and the depth and the height of His love for you? Do you know you're forgiven completely? Because that's who you are if you're a Christian. To Him. Who's God to you? Who are you to Him? And finally, where is your home? Because the Gospel says your home's with Him. And He's going to come one day and reclaim you. But your home's not here. Free yourself from having this place be your home. And you can embrace being His bride, being His body, being His temple, being His glorious aliens, and you can help us all become His new city to this broken, damaged, fearful, anxious, divided city, which is longing to see this kind of city grow inside these city corridors. And we have the power because we have the Spirit of Jesus in us if we're Christians. He is the body of Christ. He is Christ. He's God's Son come in the flesh. He was Christ's body incarnate. He was God's beloved. He was united to His Father in a way so deep, so personal, so beautiful that it dwarfs 
any marriage intimacy we've ever seen. And when you become a Christian, you enter that intimacy with God, that marriage relationship almost as it were. But he was also God's glorious alien, rejected by humanity. And then finally, alienated from his own father so he could take your sin upon himself and pay for it so we don't ever have to be alienated from God. But he became an alien to his people, to this world, and he was rejected by it. Finally, he is God's temple. He was the place where God met humanity, where forgiveness was fully and finally achieved, and reconciliation between God and humanity was finally consummated. The dividing line has been broken down by he himself. When you become a Christian, all these things that were true of Jesus now are true of you. Live up to that identity. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for the truth of this word. And may you now help us to see the beauty of the combined power of understanding ourselves for who we are, of understanding you for who you really are, and for understanding where home really is. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.